You're right. You've never once done that, but you have like 20 times done that. (laughs) Allegedly. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. So my boss asked me today where I saw myself in a year and I said, I don't really know, I don't have 2020 vision. <laughs> oh my goodness. Matt, here's the thing, you know... Because it's a calendar joke. You're, you're, Joey, it's a calendar you, joke. I, we get it. We're just not laughing. Your dad jokes I'm, have started rubbing off on my husband and it's actually really starting to frustrate me. Like the other day we were talking about nothing at all and then he took his phone case off of the phone, put it down on the pillow next to me, put one of our blankets over it and said... I rest my case. Like, what are you doing to my life? The dad jokes are imminent. Yes. It's crazy making. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I will be known from this point forward as the questing beast for this podcast. I actually really dig that title. I am super here for it. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. Everyone, we have the distinct honor this week of being joined by Her Royal Highness, the monarch herself, first of her name, the Dredge Queen, Breaker of Games, Slayer of Vintage, Miss Erin Campbell. Hi, how's it going? It is going very well. Can you tell that I'm a little bit shell-shocked to have you on the show? (laughs) (laughs) Um, A little bit, yeah. The Magic Mice listeners love to tell me whenever you talk about me on your show, and I always tune in and listen, um, and it it makes my day hearing you talk about me. So thank you for being so sweet. She's the Dredge Queen. I am but a necromantic servant. You treat royalty like royalty. I mean, that's, you just have so to. I have to, tell this, I have to tell the story of how we met because it is delightful. So we met at GP Vegas. We were all playing in the command zone together, obviously. And I was supposed to go out for tapas on Friday night. It was the night of the commander party. And I was getting ready to leave the venue because my plan was I was going to take a nap and then I was going to get ready and, and go to tapas. I get a DM from Dana completely out of the blue. And Dana goes, hey, I have somebody in the command zone here who would really like to meet you and he'd really like to get a commander game in with you and i was like all right like yeah let's do it so so i walk up to the command zone i see dana dana's with this sweetheart of a man and i walk up and i'm like hey you know you have somebody you wanted me to meet and joe falls to one knee (laughs) and goes my queen (laughs) and i'm looking around and i'm like um she's the dredge queen that's what you do (laughs) no hello no nothing just goes from like talking to dana and then boom to the floor and i'm just like oh so I take it this is the fan you want me to meet? <laughs> um, and Joe was super lovely and he introduced himself and I knew who he was because I've listened to him talk about me on the show. And then we played a really awesome game where the three of us were on our graveyard deck. So like I was playing Shirei, he was on Marin, uh, there was the young man on Kethis or Kalthus, and I think Dana was playing a pretty fair commander, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. That um, sounds like me. Yeah. And so we all kind of had our moments of doing broken things and it was just a really lovely game. And then I ran into Joe at the commander party and, and he was super lovely as well. But um, yeah, you were just incredibly kind and you've always just said such wonderful things about me. And it was just uh, meeting you was one of the highlights of the weekend. So I'm really glad that that Dana set that up. I mean, meeting you was very much the highlight of mine as well. So you were you were like (laughs) visibly shaking, Joey, like your hands were actually like it was like you were meeting Taylor Swift. How's that, Joey? 
No, that's not at all comparable. I was meeting my queen. I do necromancy. She's the queen of... Like, I don't... This isn't difficult. You treat royalty like it's royalty. And I love that you guys are already off the bat embarrassing the crap out of me on this show. It is marvelous. I can hear the blush in your voice. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, and, no and I will say this. Like, you say you're embarrassed. I, I genuinely thought it was adorable. I appreciate I it. Thank you very much, Dana. Yeah. Well, you guys have known each other for a while, too, actually, right? Yeah, so I met Dana, was it Madison? I think so, yeah. Yeah, where where we played like half a dozen games, I think. Yeah, so I met Dana at Madison. Um, I've I've started going to GPs a lot more and just playing Commander, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later. And um, I met Dana through Max Crandall, um, and so he happened to be playing with Max. And I I I had knew I knew who Dana was, but we really never played together. And um, I like Dana; I think he's a good person. We have similar playstyles when it comes to Commander. Um, I've always enjoyed my games with him, and so that was kind of how we we started following each other on social media. And I've been using EDH Rec for a while, um, and yeah, it just happened kind of organically of like me. Meeting Dana and then Dana introducing me to you and and now I'm on your show and I'm just I just hope the next step is I get a T-shirt I just want an EDH right T-shirt <laughs> very much noted writing that, that can be arranged right <laughs> I saw somebody I saw somebody with one I was at GP Indie this past weekend and I saw somebody with one and it, <laughs> this is a really deep reference but I'm gonna go there um, uh, there's an episode that reminds me of Sex in the City when Birkin bags were a thing um, and I remember Samantha really wanting a Birkin bag and finding some like just random woman in a jogging suit with a Birkin bag and she was like I need a Birkin bag. And so that's me with EDH rec t-shirts. Every time I see just like regular everyday magic players with EDH rec t-shirts, I'm like, what do I have to do for a t-shirt? <laughs> you have to come on the podcast, but now well, I'm you, here, you, so you've satisfied that need. Yeah. Put it in the mail. So you mentioned you were just at GP Indie. How was that? Indie was a lot of fun. Um, I usually have a really good time at Indie. Um, it was it was great. I went and I played Two Headed Giant with my friend Joe, and we had really sweet decks, and we did very well, and we had an amazing lunch at the Weber Grill. Uh, we went to the Brainstorm Brewery party and played so much Commander, and um, everybody was super lovely. I took lots of selfies. I signed lots of cards. Um, I got to meet a lot of people. I got to see my very good friend Emma Handy, who I haven't seen in literal years, um, and so it was very great to see her again, and we took a picture, and um, it was just an awesome weekend we had a sweet hotel and i got lots of sleep and um it was just an all-around good trip and i'm still i'm exhausted but i'm happy awesome <laughs> so uh, people are definitely going to know you much more than they will know us because of all of the awesome stuff that you do within the magic content creating sphere but you know just for the sake of it do you want to tell a little, little bit about the stuff that you do within the realm of magic your social media coordinates things like that you know what is your shindig with magic i suppose yeah, so I would say right now my big uh, my big focus is Magic Mics. Um, we've been doing that for about four years now. Um, you can find us at twitch.tv slash magicmics. We do a live show every Wednesday um, at 10 p.m. Central Standard Time. And then we also do a pre-recorded YouTube episode uh, during the week, more of like a BuzzFeed listicle kind of thing, like a lot of top tens, which, uh, you know, is, is very enjoyable. And we cover all of the news that's happening in the magic community. And, um, you know, we talk about, you know, various you know, you know sets and, and things happening with players and things like that. Um, and then I also stream in my free time. You can find me at twitch.tv slash original estrus. I'm usually streaming older formats like Legacy and Vintage. Um, sometimes I'll stream Commander or Modern. And a lot of times I have guests on and my friends teach me how to play their decks and you know we do fun things together. And so mostly I'm just a podcaster dabbling in streaming. Um, and that's really about it. So um, I do have a Twitter account, but you do have to request to follow me. I running joke with the show is I have a block list, you know, as long as my arm and you know it's 
it's it's a fun little gig we have going. And so I'm very private when it comes to my social media channels. But if if you know somebody sends me a request and they appear to be a good person, I will most likely accept the follower request. So um, if you think my tweets are something you might want to see, feel free to send me a message and we can we can work that out. Yeah, super super entertaining stuff with Magic Mics. And I actually uh, originally found your content through uh, the show that you used to do, the Girlfriend Bracket. Um, yeah, you've been on the scene for a while, and it's just really really awesome work. So yeah, I'm gonna blush again. I'm really excited to have you on the show. <laughs> yeah, and I've been on I've been on a couple seasons of the VSL. Um, we're starting to get the fourth season going. Uh, the next season is in the works right now. So uh, fingers crossed that they ask me to come back because that's always a pleasure to do. And um, yeah, I've been I've been very lucky to have been given some awesome opportunities. I did the pre pre release for Ravnica Allegiance, which was great. Um, and and just when I think it can't get any better, something else happens. So I'm I'm a very lucky girl. So you just mentioned VSL Vintage Super League. Folks probably know you best for you know all of the amazing and Miss Campbell, if you nasty, dredge stuff that you do in much <laughs> older formats. Um, you've been playing you know a lot of those uh, other eternal formats for a while. What got you started or interested in the commander format? Um, so I really gravitated towards Commander because it just seemed fun. Like when I first started playing Commander, I was pretty spiky. Like I was going to PTQs and I was collecting Planeswalker points. And so I just wanted an outlet to kind of do fun things where I didn't really have to worry about my win rate or I didn't have to have the most tuned deck in the room. And so that's really what attracted me to Commander. But my first experiences playing Commander were actually kind of negative because I had run into really spiky people. I remember one of the first games I ever played was at my local game store they used to play Commander after FNM every Friday. And I had thrown together this Omnath Locus of Mana deck that I spent like $50, $60 on, you know. Um, and I remember taking it and this girl went off on turn four with like this infinite combo of like, lightning crafter and like goblin surgeon or something. And I remember just being so heartbroken because she's like, well, that's it. And I was like, I, I played four forests. I was like, I didn't I didn't do anything. And she's like, I know, scoop it up. And I was just like, but that's not, that's not what Commander is to me. I was like, I, I thought, I thought we were gonna have fun. Like, I thought we were all gonna cast like seven drops and we were all gonna, you know, I'd have to like read the cards because they would be so obscure. And like, this just wasn't my idea of a good time. And I still don't talk to her. And that's been like four <laughs> years, but um, that's an ancient grudge right there. Um, wow. But I remember just being really, I remember just being Solid. really bummed about that because that wasn't my idea of a good time. Like, I, I was looking to Commander to be sort of a fun, you know, to get away from all of that. And so it took me a really long time to kind of find my tribe, so to speak. Um, but once I found people who felt the way that I did, where, you know, we didn't like infinite combos, we didn't like spending a lot of money on the format, we did want to be able to play those those crazy seven and eight drops, then I started to really enjoy the format. And I found a local play group that I really love and I still talk to. And now, you know, I found myself just slowly building decks one after the other. And now I've got like seven commander decks and commander's really the only format I actually buy cards for. And anymore. And um, I go to GPs and I don't even play in the main events and I don't even play any sides. I go to I go to GPs now and just play Commander all weekend. And um, I go to the command zone and play with you guys. And um, I would have never I would have never thought I would have been that girl, you know, five or six years ago. But here I am and I, I really, really enjoy it. And I just really needed to find my own people. Well, and one of the awesome things about, you know, the command zone that they had in Vegas, for example, and Dana, this is something that you've remarked on a couple times on both our show here and on your other show, CMDR Central. <laughs> is the announcements of power level was becoming such a mm -hmm. typical conversation before games would begin. Yeah. Yeah, that's been a, a big shift in the last year, especially. I mean, not that, like, people didn't do it, but particularly in Vegas, 
every game I played or games that even I said, you know, I walked past and watched, people were having that conversation. People were actively making sure that they weren't, um, you know, playing a deck that somebody wasn't capable of handling. So that's been a really cool thing to see. Yeah. Well, and talking about the command zone too, I think we should mention that. Like when Aaron and I played in in Madison, we spent every other game moving around, having to find a different place to play. We shuffled around yeah. three or four different times over the course of a few hours. Whereas in Vegas, being able to play in that command zone, that changed things so much for the better. Yeah. Yeah. The command zone was such a blessing because the, you know, Dana's right. That's something I've been very vocal about on Magic Mics is that, you know, when CFB did this big rebrand, you know, they made it seem like everybody was was welcome. They were like, well, whether you're a casual player, whether you're a spell slinger, you know, you're welcome at GPs or you're welcome at Magic Fest. But we had found the opposite to be true. And I remember going up to a CFB employee at Madison after we had been moved so many times. And he had basically tried to say that, I wasn't spending money. And he caught himself after he said that. So like he had started to say something and I remember raising my finger and I was like, uh, uh, uh. I was like, I bought sleeves. I bought food. I bought singles. I was like, I bought, I don't tell me I didn't spend money to be here. And he was like, no, 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 no. He's like, I know that you did. He was like, but we don't have a way to track that. He was like, we don't have a way to know that you bought singles or you bought sleeves or you bought snacks. He's like, so we don't have a, a way to track that you have paid to be here. And so it's unfortunate that it took the command zone and paying, you know, $40 a day or however long it was to do that. But on the other hand, it gave them indisputable proof that there is a market out there that just wants play space and that um, this is an audience that does need to be catered to and that you need to listen to them. And so um, I was really glad that the command zone happened and that it was successful as it was because that's what they needed. They needed that, that proof that this demographic exists, that they are willing to spend money and all you have to do is just give them a clean, uh, comfortable space to play in. Yeah. It was definitely awesome. It's really fan just fantastic to see the way that Commander is evolving within the sphere of magic. And mm -hmm. Matt, we really hope to see you at the next GP in Vegas next year. We're sorry that yeah. you couldn't get to this one. That's the plan. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, the uh, the girlfriend hadn't been home in a long time. She wanted me to come meet the family, so I had to oblige. But Vegas is on the docket for next year. So if you thought you got rid of me. We understand that you have your priorities in check. We We, we do get it. I mean, I magic know. should come first in all realms of life. But no, I... But okay, I suppose, if you want to have... <laughs> I, did, I, I had to go to Maine t to learn that lesson, is what you're saying. <laughs> and you are right. You are right. Uh, so, Aaron, there's always one question that we like to ask uh, to help, you know, get to know folks a little bit better. And that's simply, what are your favorite commanders to play? What decks do you have? Oh, gosh. Um, so I have seven commanders right now. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Commander's Quarters podcast. Can I just say that that podcast has been a godsend for me in terms of being everything I look for in Commander, in terms of being affordable and good decks and crazy brews and unique cards. And so that that show is just dangerous. Like, I've, I've bought so many... I've snap bought just three of their decks just off like as they were built. Like I, I love their, their channel so much. And so um, a couple of the decks I have are, are courtesy of Commander's Quarters. But um, I would say two of my favorite decks right now, I really love my Shiray deck. Um, which you got to see yes, uh, Joseph when we were in Vegas. And so <laughs> Um, I love my Shiray deck so much because it's so affo it's affordable, number one, but also it never plays the same way twice. And I know, I know, I think every Magic deck doesn't play the same way twice, but um, I can honestly say that there are so many different ways that I have won the game with Shiray. Um, I love the fact that you don't even really need to attack. You know, you can just sort of drain people if you want to. Um, I love the loops that are possible. I tend to like really subtle commanders, which is ironic because I am not a subtle person <laughs> at all. Um, and so I love sort of the, the twist of Shiray. 
You know, you're playing sort of these crappy creatures, quite honestly, uh, that nobody pays attention to. And then once they realize what you're doing, they're like, uh oh. <laughs> Um, and I have won. I have won the game in some really tight spots. You know, I've had people Armageddon me where I've had no lands, but I had my three creatures in Shire and a sack outlet, and I still won the game. And um, you know, I've had people target me numerous times with things that would keep me down, and I still won the game. And so I love the fact that you know the game plays differently every time. That you know the different configurations, the different ways of finding loops to make, um, and it's just very me. And so I, I really, really love that about the deck. And right behind that is my Queen Marchesa deck, um, which I'm a really really big fan of. Um, I play her very uh, pillow fort-like, where um, I just sort of put up my walls, so to speak, with my solitary confinements and my Norns annexes. And, um, you know, I, I like to keep it kind of fair, if you will. Um, and then I like to cast, you know, Approach of the Second Sun and win the game. And so... <laughs> Um, I love for sort of the white instance. I love playing Settle the Wreckage and, you know, people wanting to attack you and steal the monarch and then you're like, uh, comeuppance. <laughs> um, and sort of this this kind of controlling game. I really enjoy that. So those are probably my two favorite decks right now. That's awesome. I, I just, it's, it's, sorry, this is one of my favorite things about just Aaron Campbell as a human is that every time that you do something nasty, you cannot help but laugh <laughs> at how gross it is. I can't. Well, I, see, my favorite thing is playing against that Shire deck is is Aaron's reaction if you dare drop like a Bajuka Bog or a Scavenger Grounds or something. Just a profanity lace tirade is I, absolutely worth it. Even if I'm not it. playing a graveyard deck, I remember I was hanging out with uh, I was hanging out with my good friend Tappy Toclaws, who lives locally and is just a blessing if you ever get to meet her. And I was playing my Locust God deck, which doesn't even really rely on the graveyard at all, except for like the odd Faithless looting or something. And her friend had targeted me with a bajuka bog and i proceeded to fateful showdown him for like seven um and then i corvass furied him for like nine and he was just like i don't know why you're targeting me and i was like because you bogged me and he was like he's like but you're not even playing a graveyard deck it's like it's the principle and so yeah i i can i hold a pretty big grudge and y'all wonder why i kneel before aaron campbell are those not exactly things that i have said that i do when people get rid of my graveyard that i get vengeance like all of this is stuff that, yeah, I learned from the best, fellas. Exactly. It, it is true. I, I do remember the game, Joy, that we played in Kansas City where I had a turn one Tormod's Crypt, but no land, <laughs> and you still targeted me first. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, you guys are cut from the same cloth. So, Aaron, it, it makes a lot of sense that you just inspired these learned behaviors from yep. Joseph. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so let's actually get on to our main topic for the show. Dana, what are we discussing today? We're going to talk about lessons we can learn from other formats. Yeah, there are a lot of ways to play Magic the Gathering, and there are a lot of nuances to every different type of gameplay, and those can all teach you very you know, valuable and very distinct lessons about how to play the game most optimally. Like, looking through the lens of other formats can help improve our gameplay in the Commander format, too. So we wanted to take a look at some lessons that we might learn from other things like Standard or Limited or Vintage, which, Aaron, we're really happy to have you on, because you certainly play that format a lot more than we do here, where we play a lot of Commander. Yeah, I actually just qualified for the Vintage Playoffs this weekend, which I'm so excited about because it happened very quickly. And so I, I get two bites at that apple, which I'm really excited about. And yeah, Vintage is sweet right now coming off of the restrictions, and I'm trying really hard to get on another season of the VSL. So love Vintage. Um, it's it's probably the most fun I've ever had playing Magic, and um, it's, it's just where I want to be right now as a Magic player. So I love it. I mean... Commander is also the most fun that you'd have as a Magic player, but okay, I suppose. You're... Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. All right, so let's get started. We'll just move through some of these formats here. We're going to start with the format Limited. 
What are some lessons here that y'all maybe have learned more exclusively in Limited that you think are great to apply to a game of Commander as well? Well, not necessarily a game of Commander, but I think for Limited, it's very important to... So Limited's probably my weakest format. Like, I'm not really a cuber. I'm not really a drafter or anything. Um, The only real sealed I play is Two-Headed Giant and maybe a pre-release. But um, I would say the one thing I learned from Limited is you really have to get good at seeing the big picture, Um, particularly when it comes to deck building. Um, I feel like it's really easy to... You know, one of the things that really intimidated me when I first started playing Commander was that I I get to pick 100 cards. Like, I have to... I mean, 37 of them are like lands or something, but like I had to come up with 60 some cards by myself. And like, you know, obviously you have cards that you love and, you know, you're just going through your binder and like, I love this, I love this. But like, you really have to think big and you're like, I love these cards in a vacuum, but how does it work in terms of the the whole of my deck? You know, are there synergies here? Is there a reason to have this card other than just, I love it? Like, I love it and it should do a thing, you know what I'm saying? And so um, I think that's a skill that I in particular need to work on when it comes to sealed because I tend to tunnel very badly. And so you really have to lay out all of those cards in front of you um, and then really kind of make those connections of like, okay, this card with this and this creature does that. And, oh, you know, I have this many mana symbols, which goes with this. And so that's something I really apply to my commander decks, um, you know, particularly when deck building is thinking big. Yeah, I think that sealed is actually a really great allegory to the commander format since they are both, you know, Mm -hmm. you have a big pool the cards and you have to make the the deck in like sort of on the fly in the in the limited mm-hmm. environment and paying attention to the entire thing is so so important especially i would say since you're building that deck on the fly paying attention to your mana curve that was a really difficult yep. lesson for a lot of us to learn i think is like learning where all the cards need to go on your slot uh in, in each uh converted mana cost slot especially when your commander is filling up one of those spaces learning to figure out where the commander will fit into which turn and then pay attention to how that affects the rest of the cards on your mana curve distribution that's a really really big lesson and it does require that bird's eye view of your entire deck while you're in the process of building it. Yeah. I'll say for me, it, it's actually limited in particular. It's kind of gone the other direction. I've gotten to be a much better limited player because I've applied lessons from commander to limited. Mm. Um, and, and I know a lot of it's probably very obvious stuff, but like I remember at one point after being, you know, bad at multiple pre-releases in a row or whatever it was, I just was like, well, I'm just going to build a commander deck. Like I'm just going to jam every draw spell I can find and every removal spell I can find and every flyer is going in this deck and that's what I'm going to do. And I, and I go like four and one. And so since that point, I've like looked up how to play limited and, oh, you, you, you take all the draw and removal and evasion you can find. Like, so smart people knew that. I just didn't. I, I should have probably looked it up beforehand instead of being bad limited for multiple years. And I, I didn't do that. But Having then applied some of those commander lessons to it, I've become a much better limited player since then now that I kind of have started looking at limited a little bit through that lens of commander where to a degree you tend to kind of be playing singleton anyway just because of your card pool. So right. yeah. so, so looking at it that way has really kind of changed how I play limited versus the other way around. Right. I would kind of argue that limited is the format where value is king, like the effect of drawing one or two cards in a game of limited, I think is a lot more important than the effect that it might have in some other formats because of the, forgive the pun here, I suppose, but the limited scope of the limited format. Um, 
Oh boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but it also just is like limited is where you have to evaluate cards at a very base level. I mean, Marshall mm-hmm. and LSV go over things like the vanilla test or the cabs theory cards that affect the board state on limited resources all the time. You're evaluating cards on a very, very important and very fine tuned, but also very basic uh, scope there where you're looking at these cards simply as they function and finding the role that they fill within the deck there. And that also, you know, feeds very well into Commander when you need a baseline upon which to then evaluate the cards that you're using here too, those things like a removal spell become all the more valuable for exactly that reason. Well, to give you a, a really specific example here, um, the, the locket cycle that was in Guilds and Ravnica Allegiance, during the Guilds pre-release, there were there, there wasn't it wasn't just one game, but it was multiple games I won because I just literally jammed every locket I had in my pool, regardless if it was on my colors. If, if I could crack it, it went in my deck. And being able to, on like turn seven, just play a locket and immediately crack it to draw two cards was the difference in multiple games. That's a very commander mindset that like do whatever it takes to draw cards. So that's a, a good one that really translated over for me to the limited format. And I, I would imagine if you were a limited player and already knew that, that would then translate the other direction over to commander as well. Yeah. The the last lesson that really stands out to me for, you know, lessons to learn from limited is also that power is relative. Like if you are evaluating one card, a, you know, a two mana 2-2, two, two, for example, in one set, that might be a really, really solid curve filler um, in, you know, one uh, set that you're drafting. But when you move to another set, that 2-2 two, two for two mana might actually be really bad. It might not fit within what the rest of that set, what that format is doing. And sort of, you know, taking lessons from one set to another can sometimes be to your detriment. You do have to evaluate an entirely new uh, set of criteria. You know, even when folks are just uh, opening a bunch of packs and then drafting around the table with eight people, you might have a really bad deck. You know, you weren't as happy with the deck that you drafted in that particular environment. But if everyone else also opened, you know, not great stuff and they didn't draft a really solid deck, you might still have the most powerful deck at the table, even if you aren't aware of it when you're uh, when you're drafting it. The power in that format is very relative depending on the set and depending on the stuff that people open. And I think that's true of commander games too. Every time that you sit down at a new table and people flip over their commanders and you see what you're working with, the power is going to be very distinct from the other games that you played previously. And there it is a, a limited environment to that as well. There are only 400 cards within the scope of that game. And that can sort of help fine tune and make you realize which cards are going to be the most threatening to your strategy when you, you know, consider it on that relative power scale. So let's move on now from limited to the next format is standard. What are some lessons that you guys have learned from playing standard that might be useful for EDH? So to me, standard seems to really reward players who are able to kind of put their fingers on the pulse of a metagame and be able to tell where the metagame is going to turn. Um, It's very rare that you see competitive magic players play the same deck from the start of of a rotation to the end of a rotation. Um, You know, knowing when to play the red deck or knowing when to play the Esper deck or knowing when to play the Dreadhorde deck for, you know, the two weeks that Command the Dreadhorde was good. You know, that's a skill that not a lot of people have. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I ended up not doing so good at standard was, was because 
because I tend to ride a deck until the wheels fall off. And so, um, you know, every time I played standard, it always felt like this gamble of, you know, I love this deck, but does it have legs? You know, can I still play this deck in two weeks or is my deck just going to be obsolete, you know, after one open? And so um, I think that's really important with Commander is that you have to have that flexibility of, you know, is your deck capable of operating on multiple axes or does it just do one thing really well? Um, are you able to kind of read the pulse of the game? You know, or if you're playing a spikier game, you know, maybe you don't want to be doing cute things or the opposite is true. If you're not playing a spiky game, maybe you need to be making some plays that maybe are less optimal, but are more entertaining or better for everybody in the room. And so um, I think just sort of reading that pulse can come into play when you're playing Commander as well. I love that. Matt, what about you? Uh, just to kind of build on what Aaron just said, actually, being able to realize, you know, if your buddy builds a new deck, what effect is that going to have on your playgroup that you play with every day? If if there's some, if that's a deck that they want to play, you know, a few times a night, is that going to make it really hard for a certain deck of yours then to function? If somebody's playing some hard control deck with lots of board wipes, is that tokens deck that wins through combat damage, is that going to be kind of a harder deck to play as opposed to it was two weeks ago when it was just a lot of either combo decks or, or aggro decks going up against each other. So yeah, being able to read the room, like Aaron said, is, is a very, very good skill to have. And just seeing, you know, what kind of decks people are going to build in your playgroup, what effect is that going to have on how good your decks are? And do you need to make any changes within your own deck to accommodate what is going to be going on in other people's decks? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer in uh, I'm a big believer in what I call juju, where like, you know, I don't often have a lot of practical data to prove something isn't working, but I can feel it. And so, you know, I spent a lot of this summer not really building new decks, but just kind of refining the ones that I had and, you know, just kind of going through decks and being like, this just doesn't doesn't feel right. Like I don't I don't have any proof. I don't have any evidence but I don't, I don't like it. And like just knowing that it needs to go and then kind of going through and, and again, putting the finger of the pulse on yourself and just going, you know, this isn't, this isn't beating like it should. And so, you know, and then when you test something and it just feels good and you're like, yeah, it feels good in your hands. And so, um, you know, that's a skill I think a lot of people don't have quite honestly, that self-awareness of, you know, admitting when cards aren't working, being open to try other cards. And even if it means just kind of gutting the deck, you know, I had a, one of my first commander decks was Hapatra. Um, and eventually she just started getting kind of stale to where I kind of put her in mothballs for about six months. And only in the last couple of weeks did I kind of bring her back and, and basically gutted the deck and, um, you know, replaced a good quarter of the deck and now she's working great. And so um, I think that's something people are really loath to do is is to look at that and say, this isn't working. You know, I don't know why it isn't, but it isn't. It just has to feel right. And, and, and going back to that pulse metaphor. Yeah. And that's just it. Standard is the format that changes as sets go by and EDH mm -hmm. is eternal. <laughs> And we yeah. sort of, you know, are, it would be easy to fall into the trap of thinking that EDH therefore kind of stays the same because we've always got the same pool of cards. But no, that it, it does not stay the same. New cards are coming mm -hmm. out and new decks are being formed. Absolutely. Yeah. And Standard definitely teaches you to be okay with maybe moving on from a deck, which is something that I will mm -hmm. attest I very personally uh, struggle with deleting an old deck. and making Oh, I cried. I remember one of my favorite standard decks that I played was during uh, Innistrad Return to Ravnica Standard. I played the Black Green Rock deck, um, which played Thragtusk, Geralt's Messenger, Desecration Demon, Mutilate. Um, and and I literally cried the night before rotation because I had never felt that way about a deck before. I had never been so successful with a deck before. And I was just like, oh, I 
no. And it was just a big old like, um, and it just it just really scarred me. And so when I discovered older formats where I, I never had to let a deck go for the most part, um, that was a really good feeling for me because that was just, I was able to play that deck for like a good six months and I had like good results and I felt like I could take on every deck in the format. And um, I, I had a really, really, and same with approach, you know, I don't play a lot of standard, but when I find a standard deck I like, I, I take it all the way. And some of the, the last standard deck I really enjoyed was uh, Approach with the Second Sun, um, which I've talked a little bit about before. And same thing, when rotation happened, I was legitimately depressed because I was like, oh, like <laughs> I tend to get very attached to the decks that I play. Dana, what are some standard lessons that stand out for you? Um, so as we go from limited to standard, like I think the complexity as we go up this list here increases just based on the card pool. Um, standard is kind of that first format where you get interactions specifically designed in your decks. Like, you know, occasionally you'll get lucky in a limited pool and have two things that synergize. But standard, you're, you're building decks around those synergies and you're doing it with cards that maybe aren't as powerful as you have access to in, in EDH. So it's really easy to kind of like gloss over standard cards and not pay attention to them because in EDH you have every good draw spell ever printed, right? So you're just mm-hmm. going to run those and that's what it is. But that's not just what it is. Like sometimes if you dig a little bit deeper, you can find really, really cool stuff. And that's one thing that I've pulled from standard. I think the last standard deck I played regularly was back during uh, Battle for Zendikar, Shadow Over Innistrad standard. And I played a deck called Goggle Ramp for, you know, three or four months um, that was based around Pyromancer's Goggles and ramping into, uh, it was a Fall of the Titans, the um, spell that... Whichever one it was, I, I don't even remember. Does a bunch of damage, yeah. red expel, I think. Yeah. Yep, and you copy it. So, um, but but the kind of beauty of that deck was it ran things like magnetic insight and tormenting voice. That if you could copy those Parmenter's goggles, you didn't have to pay the discard effect. The way those cards are worded, as part of the cost to cast them, you discard the card and then draw two. If you're copying that spell with goggles, you just draw two more. You don't have to pay the discard cost again. That's a thing in EDH that's easy to not pay attention to because you're so used to like, I'm just going to run Knight's Whisper and Sign in Blood and draw my cards and be done with it. But once you see some of those interactions that you're forced to use in standard because you don't have access to the best cards ever, it kind of teaches you to maybe dig a little bit deeper and look for those interactions in EDH as well. And that's, you know, I've got a mono red deck right now where I'm specifically running a bunch of those red draw spells where the discard is part of the cost. So I can copy them with with goggles, and I can copy them with Primal Amulet. So that's a definitely a real specific thing I took away from that standard is learning how to pay attention to those kind of things. And from that same deck, the other one that I picked up, one of the interactions there was when you had Cosmic's Return in your graveyard, you had an option to exile it to, to deal damage to all the creatures in play. That wasn't a spell, though. Like, Dromoka's Command was, was really heavily played at that point in time and it could prevent damage from an instant or sorcery at some point i let people cast that against me multiple times until a judge pointed out that's not a cast that's that's not a, that's not an instant sorcery in your graveyard doing the damage it's just an activated ability so then that's made me then dig into edh decks a little bit more and pay more attention to that kind of thing too you know fact or fiction isn't a draw or anticipate isn't actually a draw they're putting cards in your hand but you're not drawing those cards so it works around narset or it works around damage from nekizar so that just that one deck has forced me to pay attention to a couple of things I wouldn't have paid attention to in the past and has really made me dig a lot deeper into the EDH cards I play. 
Those interactions sound wonderful, and now I kind of want to build a deck with red in it just so I can abuse some of the things that you mentioned. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> See, how come how come you don't listen to me when I say red's a color, but Dana mentions one standard deck, and you're because all Because you hit me with your red deck, right. and it was Valduk, and it was mean. <laughs> also, <laughs> you played Tormod's Crypt. Yeah, and, and Matt, studies show that handsome people are listened to more often than, than wow. people who aren't as good. So, I mean, like, I'm not saying that's the case here, but, you know, maybe. My, my grandma told me I'm handsome, so I'm going to go with what she said. Well, that explains why I listen more to Aaron than either of you guys. So we're going to move on to our next format, and that is modern. I'm laughing far too much to actually get through this, so how about some of you guys talk about modern for a second? So modern to me is the format of of weaknesses or Achilles heel, you know, what the, one of the first things I tell people who are thinking of playing modern is, or one of the questions I tell people to ask themselves is what are you okay losing to? Because modern is such a diverse format that you cannot be prepared for everything. And every time I've played a modern tournament, I I've always had those sort of matchups where it's like, okay, these are the things I want to be prepared for. These, this is the family of decks, or these are the one or two decks that I don't have much of a plan for. And if I happen to face them, well, I'll just have to think of something but you know really having to get comfortable with the fact that your deck cannot do everything and there's I don't think there's any deck that is capable of doing that and you know the same goes with commander you know my Shire deck for example I understand as a mono black deck that if you play an enchantment or artifact I'm gonna have a really hard time interacting with that and so you know understanding what your limitations are it's very tempting for me as a mono black player to be like well I'm gonna bring in discs I'm gonna bring in unstable obelisks and I'm gonna bring in you know all of these crazy things to try to deal with sort of the what ifs and just kind of going you know what this is what I do. This is what I do very well. I'm going to have some weaknesses here. Here are the things that I am okay losing to or that I am okay not being great against and then kind of pressing forward with that. Yeah, I, that's a big thing that uh, Dana and Matt, you guys were especially mentioning when we were talking about uh, Boros. We had a solving the Boros problem episode ages ago. And one of the things that we advocated on that episode was not to try and play Boros like it was Simic, like you're trying to find ways to draw cards or things like that, but to lean into the strengths that Boros already has, letting it do what it needs to do rather than trying to shore up weaknesses in other ways. Just lean into those strengths and it can often be a lot more rewarding. I think, too, that you're super right to mention in modern that this is sort of the format of like silver bullets the sideboard mm -hmm. cards like if sideboards in modern could be 20 cards instead of 15 or 25 or 30 i feel like people would be all over that because there are so many cards in sideboards that can really devastate an entire other deck's strategy and it's tough to yeah. know how many slots you should devote in your sideboard to you know getting around those a thing like rest in peace can really wreck i know i have you, the same you, know, you told me you told me during the pre-show that if anyone says anything offensive you guys have like a <laughs> sensor button or a bleep button please tell me that you're going to bleep that out for the graveyard listeners at home just boop this is how I absolutely feel. Rest in peace can go rest not in peace. <laughs> I was I was playing commander with a young man this weekend who was playing. Um, he had a mono white commander deck, the the Nine Tails from Kamigawa. He played a turn two rest in peace, and I was like, <laughs> sir, sir. <laughs> Like, why? <laughs> and thank God somebody killed it a couple turns later. But I was like, why are you like this? <laughs> it, 
Yes, I. Oh, that resonates with me on a very fundamental level. But yeah, rest in peace, Layla into the voids. Ensnaring Bridge <laughs> is another option for folks that you know. You know that other decks are going to be very heavy on creature strategies, and Ensnaring Bridge will prevent them from ever being able to attack you. There are a bunch of silver bullets that you can put into your sideboard that completely wreck everyone's day. And man, if that's not true in Commander Two. There's a reason that I don't like Rest in Peace, and it's because of my Marin deck and my Mimeoplasm deck and all of my graveyardy stuff, which is all of my decks, and it ruins my day. <laughs> I was going to say, just just say your exactly. decks. You don't have to specify, because we know. The, the one thing I've really observed with Modern is the, the people that play EDH that I know are primarily Modern players as well are the ones that really use their life as a resource. They are way more um, willing to to spend life points, like to just draw two off that Sylvan Library three turns in a row mm-hmm. in, in a way that people that are primarily standard players tend to not be nearly as aggressive with that. So I think that's oh, that's yeah. the format, I think, where you first first learn how to use every single one of the resources you have. You use all the parts of the Buffalo and Modern, and I think that's a big lesson over an EDH. Well, I went through that, too. I mean, I remember when I first started playing Magic and I saw Dark Confidant, and I remember going, ew, like, why would I want to pay life? Like, that's bad, you guys. Like, ew. And then, like, when I... It, it, I kind of got, like, Magic Woke, where I was like, oh... Oh, (laughs) and then I remember the first time I discovered Necropotence, you know, I remember being like 15 and going, this is bad. Like, I I don't get to draw like this is gross. And then, you know, as you start to really wake up to how powerful these cards are and then it hits you where you're like, oh, oh, and then you put the pieces together. And, you know, I went through that, too. You know, when I was predominantly a sealed and limit and standard player, I didn't get it. I, I looked at these cards in such a way. Painful truths, you know, sign and blood. It, to me, it was just, it was, I was thinking of it in such a level zero kind of way of like losing life is bad, you know, don't want. And then eventually you have that kind of aha moment where it all starts to make sense. And then you really realize the, the powerful tools you have out there and you just want to play with them. I remember when my friend Chris was putting together a Death Shadow deck, like one of the things that he said was, <laughs> yeah, I can pretty consistently get myself down to 15 life on turn one. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, wait, that's a good thing? Oh, yes, Death Shadow. That's right. You want yep. to have almost no life, so the oh, Death yeah. Shadow is really big. Yeah, I'm following Fetchlands and Shocklands and Thoughtseizes. Okay, I got you now. But yeah, life, definitely yeah. a resource. Modern was the, for- the first format where I really started to feel something when I played Magic, when I had that first taste of, like, broken things. And and it feels amazing, you know, when you can, like, bargain, you know, when you can, uh, you know, I remember playing Modern Ad Nauseam when I first started playing. It's like when you can just take it, you take it, you take it, you got your Phyrexian Unlife out, you're at negative two and you win the game. It's exhilarating. Well, I, I think it was when we were playing in Kansas City, Joey. It was a game with you where I'm like, at th- I was at three life, and I was trying to figure out how to cast Painful Truths for two. I'm like, okay, if I right. tap the, if I tap this just right and just the black, I can okay, then I can get a red over here. Oh, yep, I can do it for two. Good to go. I'll cast that for two and draw two cards, and now I'm at one. Awesome, Matt. Any standouts for modern for you? Uh, from modern, the, and I love modern probably more than any format besides commander that's where i really kind of stakes my claim as a competitive player um but be making sure that whatever strategy you're doing you're staying flexible within that and you're knowing how to tune your decks uh, one of the big deck building challenges i love about 60 card formats is finding out the ratios of how many types of effect do you want like in 60 card formats it's okay i want 
seven discard spells because turn one, I'm going to want thought seize and make sure that they're not going to combo off on turn two. Or, you know, if I'm playing infect, it's, I want this many protection spells. I want this many pump spells. I want this number of whatever. And so taking that over to commander and finding out, okay, I want this many draw effects in my commander deck. I want this many removal. I want this, you know, this many board wipe effects, but being able to, to play around with your ratios and just really have fun tinkering. That's one thing that I just, I love about magic in general is being able to find something that just Aaron, like you said, that has that juju. It just feels mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And I think one of those big things is, is kind of a point that I made a couple weeks ago is uh, don't hold any sacred cows when it comes to your decks. I know I said that about changing your decks up, but I can't count the times. And Aaron, I'm sure you've gone into a tournament and you're like, I really want to be playing this many copies of a card and just everybody talks you out of it. And, and it ended up being the right call. Yeah. Sometimes it's the wrong call, too, because mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you're weak of will and your buddies <laughs> influence you. I've, I've done that so many times. But yeah, just making sure that you are are taking a subjective approach to the game, making sure that, you know, even if you know something isn't going to be the best, at least be real with yourself and just say, what is my goal for this game? What is my goal for the deck, the event, whatever? And just making sure that your decisions are following through. So if you're trying to win more games, be honest with yourself and just make sure, hey, this card, I shouldn't play naturalize anymore because there's a strictly better version of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, having those types of moments, I think carry over from modern to commander more than at least for me any other lesson that we can talk about you also mentioned you know the goal of the decks having a plan one of the beautiful things that i have noticed about modern is uh that's sort of the format that taught me how to mulligan aggressively and understanding you know opening hands a little bit better than say limited or standard did like tron for example is a deck in modern that you need to mulligan very, very aggressively to find the pieces that you're looking for. I played Living End in uh, in Modern, and that was a deck that I also needed to find the exact cards. I couldn't have copies of Living End in my hand because I needed to be able to cascade into them. They were totally dead in my hand if I had them. And thankfully, that deck was also very forgiving when I learned to, uh, to mulligan those as well. Like Knowing what the deck needs for it to you know, first get its uh, its wheel spinning, basically, is definitely something that uh, Modern also was able to teach me. And that's important for Commander, too. You need some essential pieces in that opening hand for you to have any hope at the rest of that probably hour-long game. Yeah, I have to say, you know, for as much crap as people like to give Dredge, you know, that's a really valuable skill that I've learned is just how to mulligan. Like, I'll ship anything. I don't care. And, you know, that's a, that's something you see people really agonizing over. And I've been able to apply that to other formats as well. Like you said, knowing, you know, being able to say, I need exactly this. And if this is not it, I am not attached to these cards and I have no, pro- no problem shipping that. And I feel that's a skill that a lot of Magic players could really work on and that it only comes with playing, you know, kind of those broken decks like Living End and Dredge. Well, and even if, you know, you don't start with your commander deck, even if it's not necessarily, I need exactly this, if that's a little tougher to, to suss out, you know, saying I definitely don't need this is also mm-hmm. an important skill. If you open, you get your opening Absolutely. hand and it's got a nine mana plague wind in it or something, it's just like, well, you've effectively got a six mana, a six card hand there already yeah. because you're not going to cast that card for a while, no matter how much you like it. So that's also a really mm-hmm. big important lesson there, too. Yeah. Dana, do you have one last one for modern? I think I'm seeing it here in the show notes. Um, I think modern is the first format, generally speaking, where the concept of a win condition really comes up. You know, obviously in standard you'll get things like approach the second sun, or that's that's your win condition. But there's not a ton of those cards, and there's not always something like that in standard. A lot of times you're just trying to grind out a value win 
and that does happen in EDH, but but I think a lot of times in EDH decks are built around this is what I'm going to do to win the game, and that's something I think modern's a first format where you really are focusing on that in a way you aren't in limited or standard. And as the game has kind of evolved and, and commanders gotten to be a little bit tighter, even for people who play more casually, that's an important thing to think of. And I think there, there's a lot of you know modern win conditions that really kind of port over very nicely to commander. Yeah, I mean, we had an entire episode about win conditions and how important it is to focus your deck very, very thoroughly on doing the thing. Yeah, absolutely, definitely resonates with me there. Modern decks are very. Uh, very much like an EDH deck in that way, where they do have a very distinct personality about them that's focused on one particular strategy. And that is certainly the case with EDH decks too. We're going to move on now to some more competitive formats here. Our next one up is Legacy. And this might be where Dana and I drop out of the conversation a little bit because we have <laughs> less experience with this format. <laughs> So Legacy, I think, is really, it's really important to know the format as a whole. Um, you really need to know what people are going to be doing so that you know how to prepare for these these decks. Um, I also feel like we're starting to approach formats where the cards themselves, so much have been written about them. Like, I've seen articles, entire articles devoted to Brainstorm and Ponder and Cabal Therapy. You know, you know the, mm. it, the decks are, it's more about the, the sum of the parts, or, you know, the parts as opposed to the whole. And so... Um, um, you know, that's something I've really learned about in Legacy. And then even when I first started playing Ant, you know, I, I played around with Ad Nauseam Tendrils in Legacy, which is Legacy Storm. And honestly, the hardest part about learning Storm wasn't even how to storm. Like, I knew how to chain spells together. You know, that was easy enough. But I really struggled with, like, the cantrips where it was like, oh, right. You, you don't want to brainstorm on your main phase. You want to brainstorm if you have a fetch so you can fetch away the chaff. And then you want to, like, ponder. But then, like, you know, it, it's a science. Like, just understanding the blue cards is, is a science. Um, you know, you start getting access to cards like Sylvan Library. You start, um, you know, being able to do all of these things. And it really becomes about understanding the cards, not necessarily what the deck is trying to do, but really making sure that you're getting the most out of the cards. You know, knowing what to name with Cabal Therapy. Um, you know, adapting your deck in such a way to even your counter spell suite you know do you want to be main decking fluster storms you know uh you know there's it just i feel like it boils down to more of the individual cards as opposed to the whole yeah i i definitely agree and and knowing just not so much about the whole but how do how do those individual cards how do those brainstorms contribute to what the deck's trying to do mm -hmm. in general because it has a very very different function in ad nauseum tendrils or any storm deck yeah compared to how it does in, in Blue-White Stoneblade, for example. Yeah. Um, it's doing very, very functionally... It Well, functionally the same, but just the role it plays is very, very different mm -hmm. between decks. So just knowing what the cards do in your specific deck. Like, is this card a threat? Is it disruption? Because it can play different things. Sometimes you just need to keep the opponent off balance just enough in Legacy that you can take control and, and swing the game. Yeah. S sometimes you got to brute force your way through. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting just how some cards have such a massive impact on the rest of the deck. Mm -hmm. I also feel like Legacy and Vintage are really the formats where you start to see a lot of one-ofs in sideboards. Mm -hmm. um, I feel mm -hmm. like in Standard and Modern, you know, the sideboards are pretty lean, where you have a lot of twos, a lot of threes, um, but once you start getting into older formats, you really get rewarded for kind of having these more toolbox kind of sideboards, um, and that can obviously be applicable in Commander, which is a, a, a singular format, and so um, you know, you can do a lot with just you can diversify your, your package 
vintage that way. And, um, you know, you kind of get more in the habit of, of running one ofs when you play commander. I think if you're not a commander player and you start playing legacy, you might balk at that. You may be like, what do I do with this? But if you're if that's what you know, you're going to do really well in that sort of setting. I mean, this is something that I can yeah. jump in on when you mentioned the toolboxiness. This is a lesson that absolutely matters for legacy because like you need to know which cards you're going to get with the tutor options mm-hmm. or the fetch land options yep. available mm-hmm. to you. Good Lord, I would like more people to learn that lesson in Commander as well. <laughs> as an example, when I was yes. in GP Vegas, I played two games with one person who tutored no less than six times. Not like Cultivate sort of searching the deck, but like actual full-on tutors, vampiric tutors, that kind of stuff. And not one of the six times did they know which card they were going to go get. So it kind of stalled things oh. out just a little bit. Bless their heart. Well, so that's just yeah. it. Like knowing what it is that you need to get is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my, my buddies and I, before we had any big tournament, uh, the, kind of our, our saying was, know your outs. Mm-hmm. Know what you're putting in your sideboard. Know what you're putting in your main deck. Know what you have in your sideboard and your main deck at any given game mm-hmm. as well. Uh, make sure... I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I played a game one time against a Death and Taxes player who played their Stoneforge Mystic, searched their library, and realized they sideboarded out everything but their batter skull oh god but they wanted to sort of i'm not going to go into how good the person was but they sat there and just kind of looked at their deck a little bit and went through it again just to make sure and they said okay well here's a batter skull and so they knew exactly what was in their deck at the given time two turns later they played another stoneforge mystic yikes and searched their deck again i'm like okay and we ended up going to time like i I called the judge over because i was like okay this, I, I I don't want us to go to time. A loss knocks both of us out of the top eight. And then a few turns later, a third Stoneforge Mystic came down. And I was so frustrated because this player did not know what was in their deck because they had mm-hmm. sideboarded everything out. Yeah. Obviously, it's not going to be that bad in Commander, but making sure you know what is in your deck mm-hmm. at any given time. If you know something's in your graveyard, don't try to tutor for it, yeah. basically. That's oof, that's <laughs> that's an important one. There's also a, a a story that was told on I believe it was the Disorganized Wizards Club podcast, which they're really really entertaining. A lot of the lessons that I've learned about magic I've learned from them. They're really great. You guys should give them a listen. Um, but something that they've noted is that they've had seen some folks asking, for example, like, oh, how do I you know not give away that I just drew my Snapcaster Mage. You know, when I draw it and then I look through my graveyard, I don't want my opponent to read that I just got my Snapcaster Mage. And they're like, no, 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 that's not how you should be approaching this question. That is a question wrongly asked. You should be playing the game as though you could draw that Snapcaster Mage at any moment. You should already have a running tally of the stuff that's available to you in your graveyard so that when you draw that, you already know what you need to do. Like, even those small differences, you're not waiting until you get the card to evaluate what you can do with it, but planning it in advance can make a very, very big difference. Yeah. I think also there's another uh, important thing that I see in Legacy. Whenever I tune into someone who's streaming in a Legacy uh, format, one of the things that they can tell when they start playing against an opponent, that opponent will open with their turn one play. They'll have one fetch land into one shock land into a Deathrite Shaman or something to that ilk. And they'll immediately know, that streamer will know, oh, I'm playing against insert name of deck here. They'll yep. automatically know exactly what they're up against, and therefore they'll be able to you know, play around the cards in their hand a little bit more cleanly. That's definitely something that would be awesome to, you know, take that lesson and apply it to Commander as well. When someone flips over their Commander, that tells you a lot of information about what their deck is going to be doing, how quickly they're going to be doing it, how much of a threat that Commander deck is compared to the other people. You've got a lot of information before the game even begins, and it's very, very important to know those different decks inside and out too, so that you can better strategize against them. Mm Mm-hmm. 
with the added benefit too of somebody flips over their commander, you already have a, a decent idea of what they're going to be doing as well. Exactly. All right, Matt, I think there is one more note that you've got here in our legacy section, so take it away. So this last point is it kind of goes in hand in hand with what we've been talking about a little bit, but just know what threats you are going to want for any given game. I can't count the times where I've won off a single Glistener Elf, which granted is pretty easy to do in Legacy, but I play that one threat and I just protect it in, you know, and find a way to win. Uh, Delver of Secrets, those types of decks, that's all they do is they find one threat and they protect it and kill you with that one threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so making sure you kind of know, in addition to what's in your deck, is what threat do you want at any given time? Uh, if you have a crawl space on the other side of the board, chances are an Avenger of Zendikar is not something you want to tutor up and then try to play out because that's not going to do you a whole lot of good. Um, So just knowing what tool you need for any given situation. We talk about a toolbox, treat your threats the same way. You know, say somebody's playing a control deck, they have a lot of counters, so maybe play something recursive that you're going to be able to get back from the graveyard or something you can sneak into play. Find out how you can you know, to, you know, custom make your, your threat package to address the different types of decks that you're playing against or just the ones at the table, even for that game. I love that. That's definitely a great observation, especially as it pertains to Legacy, because frequently you do see like a Delver Lansdowne or a Trumnay Nemesis or a Monastery Mentor or a Glistener Elf or something like that. And that can be the sole thing that carries someone to victory. So knowing which threat you want, yeah, very, very valuable. I like that the term toolbox keeps on coming up with regards to this format. <laughs> I do love Selesnia, so... <laughs> Toolbox is right up my alley. All right, we're going to move now into our final format. That's vintage, the uh, the Black Lotusy sort of format. Eric, yes. take it away. Sort of. Um, <laughs> so I, I think the thing about vintage, you know, that one of the things I love about vintage is just the fact that you can do just broken things. And you know, I said it before, but I play Magic to feel something. And you know, vintage is one of those formats where I can honestly say I truly love just about all of the decks, you know, I still love watching, you know, a shops player do sort of the Ravager math. And I still love watching a DPS deck go off, you know, watching Vintage Storm do its thing is such a treat. And even the outcome decks and the survival decks, you know, you just sort of, I'll never forget, I love to tell the story of the first time, the very first time I ever played Vintage. Um, I was streaming with two of my girlfriends at the time, and I lost on turn one of my upkeep, and I was on the play. My opponent flashed Ashes in a ley line of anticipation and like the magic online little stopper. So the stopper goes upkeep and they're like, oh no. And all of a sudden it's like, mox, 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 bup, 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 bup. and then I die and they're like, welcome to vintage. And <laughs> I was terrified and also enthralled where I, I knew I wanted more, even though I had just died. And so if everybody's on the same page, everybody commits to that, where if you're all agreeing to do, you know, fun, broken things, you can have a really, really good time. Um, and it's very important that you make sure that everybody's on board for that kind of a good time. You know, obviously we would never take our vintage decks to standard because that wouldn't be very fun. You know, we purposely keep that in the ring with the other degenerates so we can sort of do our things. And so, um, you know, but when you when you find that space, I think it's really important that you're able to kind of run free like that. And so, you know, vintage is also the only format that really has restrictions, you know, uh, modern and legacy and standard. And they ban cards. You know, you can't run any of them. But uh, with vintage, you get one copy. And I think it really lets you it really says something about the power level of a 
hard when number one, it can make it all the way to vintage. Um, but you know, when there's only when it's when it's so good that vintage only lets you have one of those, um, it really forces you to look at cards a little differently. And um, you know, you really get to understand the power of cards, and and you get to understand um, you know card advantage in different ways, and you really get to open your eyes to strategies that you wouldn't have thought of before. Like I said, necropotence, Yogmoss bargain. The first time I saw a bargain go off, oh my god! Like um, you know, you just feel like the brain exploding meme of you know you're used to your sign and bloods, you're used to your your Phyrexian arenas, but here's a bargain. Like you just it just it it just um you just can't look at the game the same after that. And so um I, I just love vintage for how it opened my eyes in so many ways. I think that restriction observation is so important for EDH too, because there are a lot of different effects that we have at all different types of rarities. You know, there are so many different ramp spells, there are so many different ramp artifacts, but there's only one of, you know, any specific card like I don't know, maybe ramp is a bad example, but there's only one Teferi's Protection, for example. Like, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of cards that do a lot of similar things, even despite it being a, a singleton format, but there are some cards that are very, very unique in their effects, too, and those are sort of the almost, I guess, quote, restricted cards of EDH. You know, there's only one Cyclonic Rift, but there are a lot of other regular, a bit more tepid blue bounce spells available. Like, that can also teach you the importance of power level in that way as well. I think one of the yeah. big things for Vintage for me is just understanding the strength, the power of resources in that format. That's the place where you've mm-hmm. got fast mana Moxen, and that's the... I, I mean, it's just absolutely Sorry. crazy. It's withering to behold, frankly, but... Yeah, but but commander can often be called the uh, what's that Aaron Forsyth quote? I believe it's him, um, where he says that you know a lot of other formats are about resource allocation, but in EDH it tends to be a bit more about resource accumulation, um, and mm-hmm. that also kind of strikes me as being a little bit true of vintage too, because of just how important so many of those resources can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, if I'm just going to sort of keep monologuing here, pardon me, uh, is that I think Vintage also <laughs> kind of teaches you the the value of restriction. Like one of the most powerful words in magic is the word can't. When you look at things like Leovold or Narset, uh, Chalice of the Void, Trinisphere, even Nullrod, all of these are things that prevent your opponents from doing a thing. Like mm-hmm. preventing people from doing things is very very powerful in vintage and i think that's also really really true in commander as well you know when you've that i mean that's why leovold was banned in commander preventing people from drawing cards when you use a wheel there are ways to take advantage of the word can't and uh that's that's very very important to pay attention to yeah yeah just to hammer down kind of what aaron pointed out broken stuff can be super fun if everybody's on the same page uh i I know I've come into games where one person maybe had something that was a little higher power than everybody else, and they just kind of ranched the table, and everybody sat there kind of, oh, well, that that just happened, so let's try again over here. You stay there, but we'll play over here. I know, Joey, that happened to you and I a couple Mm -hmm. games in Kansas City, but but just making sure that everybody is on the same page. Aaron, like you said, you're not going to take a vintage deck and go play with standard players. You're not going to play Legacy with a bunch of draft chaff. With Commander, you want to make sure everybody's on the same page power level-wise, playing the same just obscenely powerful cards. So making sure that when you want to play a more powerful game, communicating that with your playgroup, that's something that will go miles and miles just to make sure there's goodwill 
among everybody else at the table. Yeah. And and as I've said before, you know, I play magic to feel something. And I it wasn't until I started playing vintage that I really felt something. So I guess the other takeaway from sort of the vintage component is do what you love to do. You know, people, I, you know, Joseph loves to talk about sort of my broken giggles. But, you know, that's I love that. You know, I wouldn't want to play cards that didn't inspire that feeling in me. And so even if it is something as stupid as a Doomwake Giant or even if it is something as stupid as, um, uh, you know, I, I played a solitary confinement in Marchesa the other day, which was hilarious. And so that's, you know, that is something you can take away from Vintage too. is that is the format of people doing what they love. That is the format of people who are playing magic to feel something. And if you don't feel something when you pick up your deck and you're playing your deck, then you need to fix that. And it doesn't it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be cards that are conventionally good. It doesn't have to be cards that other people like. But for the love of God, just put something in that deck that makes you feel. And, and if that's if there's anything to take away from Vintage, I think it's that. I absolutely love that. And Matt, I'm seeing one more note here in our vintage section in our show notes. I think this is very well put. You can learn as much from your losses as you can from your victories. Are you trying to tell us that you lose a lot, Matt? I lose so many times. You would not believe. I I have 0 and 5 more PTQs than I care to count. Um, but I've learned the most from those. Uh, so just making sure, and we've talked about this several times, is be critical of yourself when you're playing. Not uh, not overly critical, but critical of your deck and how it performs. Make sure you're, you're turning an eye to a card that underperforms. Ask your buddies for feedback. Maybe say, hey, in this situation, you know, what card would have done a little bit better than this one, do you think? What else can I try in the deck? Uh, I mean, talking to people in between, you know, playtesting games. Hey, this is the position I'm in where can I go wrong? Where can I go right? And then you you learn from the bad decisions so, so quickly. Uh, one of my buddies who actually works at Wizards of the Coast now, he hammered this lesson down so hard for me, I'd be remiss to not point out that your losses probably will teach you more about the game and as a, you know yourself as a player than your victories do. Well, your victories, it's easy to learn the wrong lesson sometimes too, or, or, or gloss right. over the mistakes you made because you still got to win. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of really awesome ways to play Magic. And in fact, there are formats that we didn't even touch on, like Brawl and Popper, or as people prefer to pronounce it, Pauper. Like, there's a lot of ways to play as Magic, <laughs> but we hope that these lessons have been useful, you know, to help provide a new lens to look at EDH. But I also kind of wanted to throw in one more sort of bonus thing here, I guess. If there are lenses that you've learned from playing other board games and what those might be when you apply them to Commander. You know, it's not just that there's a lot of ways to play Magic, but there's a lot of ways to play games. And are there lessons yeah. that you've learned from other games that you apply when you are playing Commander? Yeah, I think the big one for me is risk. Um, I love the political aspect of EDH. You know, the idea of, you know, collecting boons, as we used to say when I played Vampire the Masquerade, where it's like, you know, I'm going to cast to settle the wreckage and I'm going to save you. And I'm going to expect you to remember that because I'm going to come calling. And so, you know, or also just, you know, I don't know anybody. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back on, on on recent Commander games that I played. And I can't think of a situation where I was able to do everything by myself. You know, there's always been something that, like, I couldn't deal with or a person that I couldn't deal with. And, like, you need the people in your pod to various degrees. And, and risk really teaches you politics, you know. You can't conquer the world by yourself. You need allies. And, you know, you have to understand how to play the game. And one of the reasons I love commanders, I mentioned I love subtle commanders. You know, when I first started playing Omnath, Locus of Mana, people were like, oh, you're going to give it in fact? You're going to get your rogue's passage and hit him for 60? And I was like, 
No, fools. Like, it's going to put a target on my head and then everyone's going to come for me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do nothing for like 37 turns. I'm going to bank <laughs> a whole bunch of mana and I'm going to cast a squall line for 82 and kill you all. It's going to be great. And so, you know, I understand what it's like to present yourself as a target. I understand what it's like to work together with people and say, hey, I need you to get rid of this thing. Just just help me out here and I won't kill you or I've got you or, you know, I really enjoy that wheeling and dealing and that social aspect that I think really I learned in risk and that I could apply to commander. That is really, really wonderful. I love that. Matt, what do you got? So one of my favorite board games ever is also a four player game designed by Richard Garfield. It's King of Tokyo. And I cannot count the times that somebody has rushed out to the middle of the board. And if you've played the game, you have to sit in Tokyo and you get fame because you're these big giant monsters like Godzilla and all that. But you win by, you know, getting enough fame uh, and you, you win the game from there. So a lot of times people will rush in, they'll try to get as many, you know, fame points as you can. But when you're in Tokyo getting those fame points, everybody else can attack you. So people will rush in and not realize like, hey, I got to take this a little bit slower. So they'll try to, you know, go so fast, they get blown out by the rest of the rest of the group Meanwhile, there's somebody that just kind of lurks in the background for a lot of the game and they come out of nowhere and do this. We we call it the worst to first where nobody sees them coming, but they come out and just somehow take over the game in two turns and they win and they just did it out of nowhere. So making sure that you don't draw too much attention to yourself, I guess. Uh, I know the Command Zone talked about this in, in a couple of their episodes where person who plays the turn one soul ring there's so much attention on them for the rest of the game that they mm-hmm. usually don't win. That is very much the case in not just in Commander, but other board games as well. So maybe making sure, even if you do want to play that turn one Soul Ring, are you playing the type of deck that can handle that type of pressure? Are you playing the type of deck that is resilient enough to, you know, have a couple people target you down a little bit? I yeah, it's just, it's crazy just to remember, you know, that person looks very unassuming. They don't do anything, and all of a sudden they have one massive turn and win the game. So don't be surprised when that happens. Yeah, super, super great. A board game that I've been getting into a lot recently is the game Villainous. It's a little bit newer. Have you guys heard of this one? I've been yes, I've had several opportunities to play it, and I've never been able to take people up on it. I, I've heard it's incredible. It it honestly kind of plays, in my opinion, it feels like the ideal game of Commander. You are playing as Disney villains, Maleficent, Jafar, Captain Hook, the Queen of Hearts, all of this stuff, Ursula, all them, Isma, Scar now. They keep releasing new expansions, and it's really great. And each uh, each person is playing their own specific deck, and they also, in this game, there is a fate deck, is what they call it, and it is a deck that is specifically designed to mess with you that your opponents can activate when they move their piece on their board and set up their specific strategy. Everyone's got a different win condition that they're building to on their board, but other people can use an action on their side to select a card from your fate deck and then use it to specifically ruin your day. And I think that just teaches a really important lesson about like the specificity of removal you know a removal spell against one deck might not be as powerful as it will be against another deck there are very specific ways that you can mess with someone's strategy to completely devastate them and that's something that i definitely learned playing that game because you have an entire deck of cards an entire deck of answers that are very very finely tuned to be able to ruin exactly what you're trying to do that everyone can activate as needed to make sure that you sort of stay in check there's a weird political you know 
uh, political balancing about that to make sure that you are able to uh, stop them very, very efficiently from doing what they need to while also advancing your own unique board plan. It's a very, very entertaining game, and the specificity of removal and uh, of answers in that game I think is also really, really important when you're looking at a game of Commander 2, knowing how to use the removal that is at your disposal in your own deck against the other people that you're up against. Dana, what's a board game that you really like? Uh, this isn't really a board game thing so much as it is um, a conversation I had with somebody, this was many years ago, about, of all things, auto racing. And in this conversation, the, the person was, I can't remember how it even came up, was talking about how in auto racing, any amount of gas you still have in the tank when you cross that finish line was a miscalculation and it made you slower. So you're, mm-hmm. you're, you want to cross the finish line optimally as you run out of gas. And anything that's that's more than that is extra weight you've been dragging around the track. Um, you don't want to die with still had all these. Right, right. You know? and, and, yeah. and obviously you can't perfectly time that, but like the closer you can time that, the, the, the better off you are. And that really stuck with me for some reason, particularly in gaming and especially in Magic, for two reasons. Um, for one, it has really got me thinking in games about how much those little tiny margins matter, how much of a difference that, you know, the little bit of fuel that you're lugging around in your tank makes a difference for your speed and how, you know, shaving a quarter second off multiple laps and adds up over the course of a game. That applies to Commander in a lot of ways. If you have, you know, these these tiny, tiny changes in your deck that you make that eventually adds up to a larger change on the whole. And I, I read an entire, entire article series about making those small changes. So that kind of has inspired that that line of thinking. But it also kind of has made me think about talking about when I mentioned using your life as a resource, it's made me be much more aggressive with using my resources in Commander because if I win or lose a game with a bunch of unspent resources, then I, I didn't play that optimally. Now, again, you, you, you can't end every game that you win at zero cards in hand and at one life. That's not really realistic. But I think... If you win a lot of games or or lose a lot of games with a full grip of seven and you're at 40 life when somebody combos off, you probably haven't been doing all you can to play that game and advance your board set in that game. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've been because of that conversation, it's made me really pay attention to those kind of things in Commander. And it's made me be a lot more aggressive with taking both those cards off the Sylvan Library or, or, or making sure I get that ship damage in on somebody when I can because it may look insignificant now, but seven turns from now, it's not going to be insignificant. So, so that, that one conversation about auto racing, of all things, has really made a difference for how I look at EDH. Yeah, I love it. I mean, when you start a seafaring journey and you're maybe one degree off course over the course of a long journey, that's right. going to make a big difference. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. If I could take away, if I can just add something, I want to go back to Villainous for a second. Um, you, being the villain is fun, and I'm sure that's something Joe can relate to. Um, you know, I, but if I just had to say one thing about being a villain, I think there's a certain element of one of the things that I think doesn't get nearly that doesn't get talked about nearly enough when it comes to playing dredge is the aspect of fear. And um, you know, I think people have an irrational kind of fear of dredge to where you know they will overboard for it to the point where their deck is just bad. Um, and likewise, I think a lot of dredge pilots get held back because they're so afraid of what the other opponent will of what the opponent will have. And I think you know a certain amount of fearlessness is required to play certain decks as well, where you know it's very easy, even when playing Shirei, you know. I, 
I don't have those fears. Like, cause people ask me and they're like, well, you're playing a really, you know, graveyard heavy deck. What are you going to do if they have this? What are you going to do with this? And you're like, I, I can't worry about that. Like I'm a do me. <laughs> I'm going to do what I came to do and you either have it or I'm coming for you. And so, um, I think a certain element of just kind of not caring and just being very committed to like what you came to do was very important and, you know, kind of damn the consequences, you know, it doesn't matter if you're playing an unpopular commander or you're playing an unpopular card, just commit to what you're going to do and, and stay the course. And I think you can have a lot of fun with that. Be the villain, guys. Be the villain. Yeah. You know, I see a lot of people are like, oh, you shouldn't play this or oh, this feels bad or like, no, do you just do you. And my one of the best pieces of advice I ever got when it came to playing Dredge was stay scary and make him show you the hate. And stay scary is my it's my one of my, my big mantras. That's phenomenal. Guys, I'm, I'm so I'm so excited <laughs> right now. We have such a good guest on this week. <laughs> Alrighty, we are going to move into our closing segment, and that is Challenge the Stats, where we like to pick cards that we think, according to EDHREC, are either seeing too much play in the Commander meta or maybe not seeing enough play. Aaron, do you have a Challenge the Stats pick that you would like to grace us with at this time? I'm going to kind of break the rules a little bit. So I know that we're supposed to talk about stats here, but I'm just going to talk about a card in general that I got to be honest, I still to this day don't know what it does. <laughs> um, Coalition Relic. <laughs> um, I, I see that card in so many commander decks and, and I've certainly been told to play it and I read and I reread it and I just don't get it. And I'm like, can I just play a locket? I'm like, can I can I just play a talisman instead? Like this looks like a lot of work. So um, I see I see coalition relic in so many decks, but it just looks so difficult and like it's so wordy. And I don't know why we're doing it. I think there's just simpler choices. Give me a key rune. I mean, I, I just don't have that kind of time. What are you talking about? <laughs> we we can tell you, we can tell you from experience what it doesn't do, and it does not keep its counters from turn to turn. There we go. You know who you are. <laughs> We, we played with a certain repeat guest wow. in Kansas City who who thought that the counters carried over from turn to turn. So they had like 15 counters on Coalition Relic. We're like, that's not how it works. You have to use that mana this turn. <laughs> oh, Is this the same person who person was playing then, a Farseek in his mono green deck? Yes, it is the same person that was playing Farseek wow. in the mono green deck. Yeah, pretty great. Not to say any names. <clears throat> Well, I, I agree with this because I have a fairly recent Coalition Relic story from a deck of mine. I was running it in my mono-white uh, Jeru Super Friends deck, and oh, there's a lot of proliferate effects in that deck. So that was one of the reasons I started putting it in the deck. I'm like, oh, well, I'll proliferate that counter and get extra mana off it every single turn. That will work out great. Um, I had a game fairly recently where I did have, I can't remember if it was Karn's Bastion or what it was, but I had something out where I was proliferating rel relatively regularly every single turn. Which meant I would put an extra counter in Coalition Relic, and then I would take those off every turn, and then tap it, put one more on it. So I was getting two mana off it. That was a perfect situation. I was doing this thing I was already doing, and it was letting me get two mana off Coalition Relic every single turn for a three mana rock that could have just been a worn Power Stone and got me two mana every single turn, regardless of what else I was doing, regardless of me having proliferate effects out or not. And I just realized this is basically a worse worn power stone particularly in a monocolor deck the dream situation for it me getting extra counters on it still wasn't that good yeah well that is in a monocolor deck i think yeah. coalition relics you know got nice applicability in multicolor decks i'm sure that if folks are playing atraxa the ability to proliferate that and then get two of the colors that they might need but you know with that said there is something to be said for you know playing cards with simplicity yeah 
All right, so Dana, what is your challenge this week? Uh, my challenge to stats this week is a little card called Prototype Portal. It's only in about 2,100 decks on EDH Rec, and I will quick read what it does. It's a four-mana artifact that has imprint, so when it comes into play, you exile an artifact from your hand, and then you can tap it for X and put a token into play that is a copy of that artifact. That seems pretty straightforward. Okay, I'm going to put this, you know, five-mana creature under it and make a copy of their creature every turn for five mana. Um, that seems relatively underwhelming. The reason this card really, really works good in Commander is we have access to artifact lands. And this isn't... There's only a couple hundred decks in EDH Rec in, that, that played in Berea where you have access to four different artifact lands and Dark Souls Citadel taking you up to five. Basically means that you play this with an imprinted land underneath it and tap it for zero every turn and just make a land token. And if it happens to be Dark Souls Citadel, you make an indestructible land token that's just probably going to be there forever all game long. It's a really good ramp engine in in an artifact-centric deck running artifact lands, and that's before you even get into whether or not your deck's may, deck may happen to have a Mox Opal in it, or whether or not you may happen to be running like a Mox Tantalite or a Lotus Bloom that you can just imprint and make a Lotus Bloom every single turn that you can crack for three mana. There's a, I mean, if you're putting a Soul Ring underneath it and spending one mana per turn to make a Soul Ring token, that's pretty good. So there's a lot of decks out there that are just running a bunch of zero drop artifacts that would be, they'd be really advantageous to make a copy of that every turn for nothing. And I, I just hardly ever seen it, see it get played. And I see a lot of decks out there that would probably really be able to do some just stupid stuff with it. Well, that's just it. It reads like the type of card that you would want to put something big and splashy right. underneath, but then that is a very hefty mana cost to pay for the prototype portal to then, you know, create a token of that, but you're able to twist it into becoming a very nasty kind of ramp spell. I know that people say that ramp is, you know, centered in green, but there's some very good artifact ramp out there, and that is just one more creative way that you found to also make artifacts really good at getting the mana they need, so I super, super love that. Matt? What about your challenge? So this challenge actually is one that I I think I'm going to try to fit into my own deck, but it's going to go into a Omnath Lucas of Rage deck. Uh, so currently some of the top themes in Omnath decks are Elemental, Tribal, Lands, and, ran and Landfall. Anything just centered around making Omnath produce lots and lots of Elemental tokens. With Commander 2020, or not Commander, I'm sorry, Corset 2020 uh, that has come out, there's a lot of really cool Elemental tribal synergies that came out and one that really impressed me that did a lot of work against me is thicket crasher it is three and a green for a four three elemental rhino with trample that says other elementals you control have trample it's currently showing up in 21 percent of omnath decks that have been built and it just it it was so good against me because this person was playing more the elemental tribal route they weren't doing the uh, ramp out and just make a bunch of Omnath tokens. So they had stuff like uh, Multani Yavimaya's Avatar, who gets very, very big. Uh, Avengers Zendikar, they're playing... Oh my gosh, there's a couple other just big... big uh, Creeping Trailblazer, that was it. Uh, which is this big, big creature that you can pump to give it plus one, plus one for each elemental creature you control. So if you have a lot of elementals, you can pump it up very big. But the problem with a lot of these creatures is none of them have evasion. So Thicket Crasher as a way to give your entire team when you're playing Elemental Tribal Trample makes it very hard to block. I was very, very impressed with it. So it's not a great card. It's not one of those glamorous cards, but it's kind of one of those incremental 
you know, add in a little bit here and there. It's a very, I mean, it's a quarter. You can get them dang near anywhere in a draft shaft, but it's just a very good card that gives an added bonus in addition to being an elemental itself. So it has some of that synergy. It feeds in if you're playing stuff like, uh, uh, the the banner that uh, banner? you choose a creature and draw a card vanquisher's banner yeah so if you're draw, playing that draw a card it just feeds in very very well with those elemental tribal synergies and that evasion i was impressed with how well five fives did when you gave them all evasion it, it you're mr selesny you shouldn't it shouldn't be news to you that five fives with trample are good that's I like know. your entire strategy i, I dude. think i just I, for, I forgot about it, I guess, for a week, because I, I haven't played my Merry deck in a couple weeks. But this card just, uh, it, it made combat so hard for everybody at the table, except for one person that was playing it. Man, I look forward to playing against you next when you trample all over my graveyard stuff. It's going to be sweet, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's always sweet. I, I, I'm not going to say it's not. Alrighty, we're going to move on to my challenge this week. This is the card Null Profusion, and I'm not looking at it within the you know greater commander sphere, but I am looking at it in the new deck, Kirik, Son of Yawgmoth. Kirik, as we all know, is that new uh, mono-black commander that turns all of the black mana symbols on your cards into Phyrexian mana symbols if you'd like to pay two life instead of paying the black mana for them, which is absolutely crazy. And a card that I think that Kirik would be well-served to utilize is Null Profusion. This is a six-mana enchantment for four black-black. It's from Planar Chaos, and it is weird. It says that you skip your draw step, and that whenever you play a card, you draw a card. But your maximum hand size is two. Man, the, what I'm seeing with Kirik is that this is basically a mono-black storm deck, and something like Null Profusion is going to make sure that you get where you need to go. Because every time that you play a spell, you will draw another card off of the Null Profusion, and Kirik makes it really easy to cast all those black spells by paying life instead. This pairs excellently with other cards that Kirik will very definitely be running like Aetherflux Reservoir to help you regain all of that life, or Creatures with the Extort mechanic to help you regain all of that life. But the really interesting part about Null Perfusion is that it says whenever you play a card, you draw a card. So even your lands can draw you cards, which I think is just absolutely nutso. This is a very interesting card to help enable some Kyrick Storm strategies, which based on my own testing with Kyrick, seems to be one of the more popular ways to play him. We'll see if I end up committing to that deck after all or not, but the times that I've been goldfishing that deck with Null Profusion have been absolutely exceptional. It's not showing up on his commander page at all right now. It's only in nine total Kyrick decks, and I think that it should be in much more than just nine because it does some mean stuff. Like Aaron said, be the villain here. Well, and, and that's a color-shifted recycle, right, I think, which is in green? Yeah. Yes. And those are both cards that I've always waited for, like something or someone's going to break them at some point, and maybe Kira, because when I finally does it. Man, he's he's so bonkers, guys. That card is just absolutely turning all of your stuff into Rexian Mana. It's crazy. And stuff like Null Perfusion just helps it get even crazier. Really, really crazy stuff. All right, folks, are there any last-minute thoughts that we have about lessons we've learned from other formats in Magic? Um, I mean, I, I've just learned really to kind of, I, I mean, I think just kind of the opposite of, you know, Commander has taught me to really kind of have fun in different formats. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I think it's very important for everybody to have an outlet that is fun. You know, I don't think people can subsist, uh, subsist is the word, sustain, 
I don't, I don't know the word I was looking for, but I don't think people can survive on competition alone. And so I always get really worried when I meet really spiky people that, you know, are just on the grind. You know, I think you have to find something that you love. I think you have to find a reason to take the shields down and just have fun. And, um, you know, whether it be a pre-release or whether it be, um, you know, a, a commander game or whether it be a cube, I, I think commanders really taught me how important it is to have an outlet, um, you know, to something else you can focus on as opposed to just winning all the time. Like I've become a better loser since I started playing commander yeah i love it we just talked about the lessons from other formats but there are plenty of lessons that commander has Mm -hmm. to teach us about those formats too yeah and maybe hey in the future we might talk about those lessons as well who knows this was really (laughs) really fun to talk about and aaron thank you so much for coming on to the show it's been an absolute pleasure having her royal majesty here on the cast (laughs) you're gonna spoil me for other people like i'm gonna go on some other show and they'll be like yeah aaron's here and i'll be like i don't I don't get a title. I don't, I don't get four. I don't, I'm, I'm not a breaker. I'm not what? Like you're going to ruin me for other people, Joe. Um, but no, this really means a lot. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of the show. Obviously I love, I love you all so far. I've never had the chance to meet Matt before, but I'm pretty sure I would like him. And you know, I've certainly been on a lot of podcasts, but I've never been on a commander show before. So thank you for, for introducing me to that. And if anybody's listening, I'd love to come on your show too and talk about commanders. So, um, so thank you very much for the opportunity. And speaking of shows, where can folks find you? Oh, gosh. Um, so twitch.tv slash Magic Mikes, as I mentioned earlier in the show, twitch.tv slash Original Estrus. I've got the, the Estrus brand pretty much on lock. So twitch, you know, twitter.com slash Original Estrus, um, you know, that it's pretty much where you can find me. I spend most of my time on Twitter. I don't really do other platforms. Um, so that's basically about it. Twitch and Twitter, YouTube. Um, I believe it's under Mr. Orange, which is Magic, which is Evan's channel, um, and, or the Magic Show, I think it is, something like that. So you can find us on YouTube as well. Um, you know, we are on reddit i think it's reddit.com slash r slash magic mics and uh pretty much anything magic mics related i'm hoping to be on another season of the vsl um which you can obviously find on twitch.tv slash magic um and that's really about it <laughs> that's about it those accolades are annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm i'm approaching my light season you know just just two projects a week it's fine and Aaron, just because I know how you spell it, how do you spell estrus for our listeners who don't know? Yeah, totally. Um, so it's O-E-S-T-R-U-S. Estrus was my druid from World of Warcraft, who I still play. And so um, I started off playing World of Warcraft uh, for, for many, many years. And, and estrus is very much a part of my personality and who I am. So, um, you know, you can find, and if you ever see estrus anywhere, it's probably me. Uh, Magic Online, I'm estrus, Twitter, Twitch, Skype, uh, email. If I'm on a boards, I'm probably estrus. And so it's usually usually me. And, fellas, where can listeners find us if they would like to get in touch with the cast? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach, and you can hear me twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenneth Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on our community content spotlight section on EDHREC, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. And, oh, you've got a dog. Matt has a, we actually, we all have dogs, don't we?
I have. Oh, I just saw that Matt's Twitter profile. <laughs> oh, I do. Ha- I do have a pupper. Yes. I was just talking about that with a friend the other day. I just started getting on the dating apps, and I was just musing to one of my girlfriends how, like, every guy out there really wants you to meet his dog, <laughs> and I don't quite understand what that's about. Like, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen a Tinder profile and it has some variation of like, my dog needs a mom. And I'm like, I don't want to meet your dog. Like, why do they want me to meet their dogs? Like, it seems to be a really important thing for, for single guys nowadays. So it's just the first thing it made me think of when I'm like, oh, he's he's got a dog. Okay. You like, you, sh- you should move to Colorado where all the girls are holding fish because apparently that that's too, the thing to do. That too. What is up with that? Like, I don't know anybody I who's looking, does it mean you're a good provider? Like, I don't really understand. <laughs> don't like, know. I'll feed you. Like, I, 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 I luckily met a girl who doesn't care that I don't fish, so which is great. So, <laughs> screw that. I want like a Fred Flintstone. I want someone who's going to bring me like you know the end of the Flintstones when they're at the drive-through and the waitress comes up and drops the big like rib cage on the car. That's the what rack I want. Of ribs. There we go. Like if you want a rack of ribs the size of a Toyota, I sure do. Like that's what I'm going to be looking for on Tinder. Just swiping, <laughs> swiping. Oh, ribs that can knock a car over. Swipe right. Just yes. Yeah.